Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I began yesterday's podcast by pointing out the weakness in shares of the recent IPO of Lyft. In fact, I mentioned that Friday's close above the IPO price, the first time it closed above that price since the day of the IPO, the fact that it couldn't hold on to that rally, I thought that meant the stock looked even weaker technically. And we got a big follow through today. Uh, Lyft sank about 11%, closed near the lows of the day. Uh, 60 spot one, two. In fact, we did trade as low as 59.75 in the closing minutes of trading. We're now down about 32% from the opening print, right? After it went IPO on that day. In fact, we're, what about 17, 18% below the IPO price. If you happen to get the IPO price and you still have the stock, you're almost in a bear market from that purchase price. And the catalyst today was the news that it looks like the Uber IPO is going to happen sooner than everybody thought. Maybe they're going to be filing as early as this week, and the IPO is actually going to be bigger than people thought as far as how much stock they're going to be looking to unload on investors, although they're taking the valuation down for maybe 90 to 100 billion, I think initially they were talking maybe 110, 120 billion, and they're going to look to unload about 10% of the company, $10 billion. Now, you would think, wait a minute, 
if Lyft is doing so poorly, what is the rush to bring Uber to the market? I mean, doesn't it seem like a bad time uh, to bring Uber out if Lyft is having so much trouble? But if you think about it, I think what Wall Street is worried about is if they wait even longer, the price of Lyft will sink even further. So it's a mad dash uh, to get this thing out there before you know it really hits the fan. Because this is showtime, right, for all of these unicorns, right? Everybody's been pretending that these stocks have had all this value because they haven't really been subject to any market forces. I mean, beyond, uh, you know, the private VC money, right? People have been able to pretend uh, that unicorns actually exist, even though they're, they're mythical creatures. But you have this huge valuation on these companies but now that we're shining the light of truth on these companies, there is no real appetite in the public market for these valuations. And so they're rushing to get Uber out. But meanwhile, Lyft is sinking. And who knows how much further this thing is going to fall. The, the, the overall stock market is still shrugging this off. I mean, the Dow was up today. In fact, uh, the S&P and NASDAQ percentage-wise were up more uh, so it's it's nothing as far as Wall Street is concerned. But I think that this is uh, a canary in a coal mine. This is, wait a minute, uh, the, the appetite for speculation is not what we thought. And this is just another myth that is being exposed and that the bulls on Wall Street are continuing to ignore. Well, they are going to ignore this at their own peril. You know, another uh, topic today... Uh, was inflation. We got the government's version of inflation, the CPI, out this morning. Although before the government released their numbers, I was listening to the Mario Draghi press conference. Uh, I think it was before. I Actually, I forget the chronology now, but I was listening to that press conference. And for the first time, I heard Draghi actually say that he was willing to tolerate inflation above 2%. This is new. Nobody's really reporting about this, uh, but it you know, lifted one of my eyebrows because he always says that we have to keep inflation close to but less than 2%. This time, for the first time, he kind of borrowed a, a page from the Fed's playbook and said that he was willing to overshoot on inflation, that his real goal is we need more inflation, and I, I'm even willing to go above 2% if it's necessary to get the inflation close to 2%. He's now kind of talking about averages. So now I don't know how well this is going to go over in the Eurozone or how well this is going to go over uh, with the Bundesbank. I think maybe uh, some pressure is going to be put on Draghi because I don't believe there's a lot of tolerance uh, there for inflation above 2%. But inflation is rising. It is going to be rising worldwide. I mean, this is what nobody expects. It's what nobody's worried about. And it's always uh, what you're not worried about that comes out to bite you. The, the numbers that we got today for March, uh, the CPI, the headline number was up 0.4% versus expectations of 0.3. Year over year, the CPI is now up 1.9% uh, versus the, the prior print of just 1.5. And the uh, core, if you strip out food and energy, that was up 2% year over year versus 2.1 uh, prior. But what should be concerning people is what's going to be happening to the headline number. Look at what is going on with the price of crude oil. I have been pointing this out, oil up again today, what another five-month high or so. We're now about $64.50 per barrel. The price of oil continues 
to rise despite the fact that the dollar has not fallen. Now, it's interestingly, the dollar did rally a bit on the dovish comments coming out of Mario Draghi, but ultimately it couldn't hold that rally and it surrendered the rally. So, you know, again, to me, the dollar is having a lot of trouble sustaining a rally above 97, looking at the dollar index. Uh, so I think uh, the dollar is getting ready for a, a drop. And of course, that means gold is getting ready for a rise. Gold was up a few bucks today, uh, but nothing spectacular. But we are holding now back above 1300 on the price of gold. The little gold stocks uh, were on the weak side today, despite the small increase in the price of gold. But you know, it's an interesting uh, point to be made about inflation, because I spoke a lot yesterday about the wealth gap and capitalism and Ray Dalio. And one of the reasons that you have this rising inequality is because of the Federal Reserve's efforts to pursue inflation. I mean, even Mario Draghi said that we know I need more inflation. That is our goal. We want inflation. Well, that's been the Fed's goal. They're trying to reach their inflation target. Well, that is one of the reasons that you're seeing this wealth gap because inflation hurts the most the poor and the middle class, right? They don't have financial assets that benefit from inflation. They earn wages and the value of those wages are destroyed by inflation. The cost of living is going up and the value of their savings, if they have any savings, is, is going down. So this is, again, another thing that Dalio didn't point out. In fact, as he is uh, you know, praising the Federal Reserve for quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, their efforts are causing inflation, which is undermining the living standards of average Americans and forcing the cost of living to rise. And if you're very wealthy, well, the cost of living is an afterthought because you have so much extra money that if your grocery bill goes up, it doesn't really affect you. But if you're struggling and living paycheck to paycheck, then your grocery bill is a big deal. And of course, if you're having to spend more and more money on current consumption, well, then you have less money to set aside for the future, which is another reason for the wealth gap, because uh, middle class or lower class people are spending all their money uh, just to survive. They don't have any extra money left over to set aside for their retirement. But, you know, I wanted to uh, discuss a couple of points that that I that I left out of yesterday's podcast, which is one of one of the reasons that I'm that I'm doing the podcast today. Plus, I also want to talk about the spectacle that took place on Congress today, where the House Banking Committee, led by Maxine Waters, was grilling the CEOs of all the big banks that were bailed out, you know, 10 years ago. It's basically a look back of 10 years and, and, and checking in on the banks and seeing what's happened. So, I mean, really some incredible stuff there. So I, I did want to talk about that as well. But before I get to that, just to get into some of the points uh, from what I discussed uh, yesterday. First of all, I, got, I saw some comments. People were curious about what the difference is between a democracy and, and, and a republic. So I thought I would spend a little bit of time 
and, and answer that. Because I, I, I talked about how democracy was failing and how the United States was established as a republic and we are supposed to have Republican government. We are not a democracy. And of course, when uh, the founders created a republic, I mean, they, 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 they had other choices, right? They could have created a monarchy. And the difference between a republic and a monarchy is under monarchy, the rules are made by the king, right? You have a hereditary title that's passed down and it, you know, the king is, is, is at the top of the government. But a republic is self-government. It's government by the people. But it's not necessarily democracy. Under democracy, right, uh, the people are making the rules themselves. Or a, under a direct democracy, rather, right, the people directly decide what the rules are going to be, what the laws are going to be, right? Now, you can also have a representative democracy where people vote for representatives and then the representatives decide what's going to happen. But we have elements of representative democracy in the American Republic, but we were not founded as a democracy. We were founded as a self-governing nation, but not governed by the principles of democracy, meaning one man, one vote, mob rule. The idea wasn't for government to reflect the will of the people. Uh, we established a constitutional republic, uh, self-governing without a monarch, but without democracy. I mean, we did have voting, right? If you go and look at the, the federal government, the Constitution does provide for the election of representatives by the people. The people uh, voted for uh, the uh, members of the House of Representatives, and they ran every two years, right? So that was a body that was elected by the people. But the people themselves did not vote. It was their representatives who voted. And the reason you wanted to separate the people from the voting was because the hope was that representatives would be smarter than the people and therefore they would make better decisions than the people would directly, right? But that was just one layer of the federal government. You had the senators, which were not elected by anybody. They were appointed by state legislatures, right? Who were supposedly smarter than the people in their state and then they appointed senators who served six-year terms, right? The president of the United States and the vice president were not elected directly by the people. They were elected by electors. That's where we got the electoral college. But the electoral college was not just supposed to do what the public wanted, but what they wanted. But again, even if you had people who were appointed or elected, even if they wanted to do things, they couldn't do it if they constitutionally didn't have the authority because the American Republic was governed by a constitution which was written to limit the power of the government to do things. The federal government under the U.S. Constitution has few and defined powers, and I've gone over that. So even if the vast majority of elected representatives wanted to do something because the people wanted to do it, if the constitution didn't authorize it, then they couldn't do it. Right? And you had a Supreme Court that was there that could declare uh, stuff that Congress passed unconstitutional. And of course, even before it got to the Supreme Court, if something got passed by the House and passed by the Senate, one man, the president, could veto it and it's all done. It doesn't, it doesn't make it. Now, of course, they can overturn the veto, but now you need a lot more than a majority to do that. But again, even if the president signed it and both houses of Congress passed it, if it's unconstitutional, the Supreme Court's supposed to strike it down. It doesn't matter how much popular support it has. So we had a, a Republican government. The founding fathers 
could have established a democracy. It was again, it wasn't like democracies hadn't existed in the past and they didn't know about democracies. They'd studied democracies and they deliberately did not want America to be a democracy. Now, they didn't want America to be a monarchy either. So they they established a republic. Now, to be honest with you, I think a monarchy is a better form of government than a democracy. You know, now, of course, you know, you want to have a constitutional monarchy, just like we have a constitutional republic. You want to have some checks on the power of the king. But believe me, democracy is probably the worst form of government, direct democracy. And of course, you know, the more that we degenerate into that form of government, uh, the bigger the problems are going to get. Anyway, let me go back to a couple things I wanted to point out. One of the... Uh, the solutions. I went over all of Ray Dalio's, you know, BS solutions, but I actually left one out. And so I wanted to wanted to bring that one up. And one of his solutions, the only one I think I left out, because he doesn't have any real solutions, but the only one I forgot to opine on, Dalio said that he he wants private enterprise, private business and government to form more partnerships so they can work together. Yeah, that's the last thing we need is the government to be a partner. I mean, think of some examples of government private sector partnerships. Oh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, right? Two huge disasters, right? Oh, what about Solyndra, right? We don't want the government working with private enterprise. You know what that is? That's fascism. I don't want that, right? I want the government to do what it does well, which is hardly anything. I mean, there's a few things the government could do well, and that's what it needs to stick to. Just do those limited functions and leave everything else uh, to private enterprise. Now, I wanted to elaborate, though, on one um, one comment uh, that I did point out that Dalio said about teachers, right, where he, you know, he thinks that teachers are underpaid. And I didn't really comment on that specifically. I talked about just how much money we're already wasting on public education, and I don't want to waste any more. And he does. Uh, but he wants to you know, talk about how teachers are underpaid, which is, again, very popular politically, especially with teachers. But not only are teachers not uh, underpaid, they are overpaid, right? And I know it's politically incorrect to point that out, but I don't care. Teachers are overpaid. I don't know what Dalio is talking about when he thinks they're underpaid. Absolute nonsense. I mean, one observation he made is that he, he tried to compare what teachers earn to what other people earn who have, you know, bachelor's degrees. Well, you know what? Getting a bachelor's degree in education is a lot easier than getting one in computer science or, or engineering or chemistry. I mean, believe me, one of the easiest Mickey Mouse majors that you can have, right, is education. So the, 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 the smartest, the hardest working kids at college are not the ones that are majoring in education, number one. So it's an unfair uh, comparison. But also, when you're looking at what teachers are paid, right, their salary, and you're comparing their salary to the salary of, you know, an engineer or an architect or computer, you know, programmer or something like that, you're really not making a fair comparison because teachers get a lot of compensation that is not reflected in the wage, right? Number one is vacation time. I mean, what other job do you get the entire summer off, right? Teachers don't work in July and August. I mean, find another job like that, right? So that has a lot of value. Now, I know there are some teachers that maybe have summer jobs and make some extra money, uh, but, you know, and that could be added in. And so that's not seen there. But a lot of teachers don't. I mean, they enjoy their summer vacations. They have a lot of fun. Most people can't do that. You can't tell your boss, I'm taking a summer off. I'll see you in two months. 
right? Because your job's not going to be there in two months. But the teacher's jobs are always there. Uh, which brings me to another point, job security. Teachers are rarely fired, right? It's, so, I mean, you have a lot of job security. Once you, you get a teaching job, I mean, it's pretty hard for anybody to fire you, right? That has value. Also, these teachers all get big pensions. Most people in the private sector don't have any pensions these days, but the teachers do. So what's the value of those pensions? Throw that in there. Then also, there's a lot of personal satisfaction when you're a teacher. I mean, being a teacher is a fun profession in general. Uh, you know, you're working with kids. Uh, you know, you're, you, you get the joy of educating them. I mean, compared to most jobs, right? If you talk to teachers and ask them about job satisfaction and, you know, and, and their personal fulfillment, teachers generally enjoy what they're doing, right? I mean, much more so than people that have your typical job, which is, you know, mundane and uh, repetitious or, you know, people don't like it. Then, oh, another thing I forgot is the hours. I mean, teachers aren't burning the midnight oil. Most schools are over at, what, 3.15 or something? I mean, then they leave, right? They're not working 10-hour, 12-hour days. The teachers aren't working weekends. I mean, so it's not a hard job. It's a, it's a fun job. It's a personally uh, rewarding job and fulfilling job. That's why so many people want to be teachers. In fact, if teachers were really underpaid, like Dalio, you know, is claiming, if that was the case, there'd be a shortage of teachers, right? I mean, that, I mean, the market isn't going to have a situation like that. The fact that there's not a shortage of teachers, the fact that it's not hard to hire teachers means that they're not uh, underpaid. Now, I will admit that there are some teachers, I believe, that are underpaid. I think they're in the majority. I think there are some really, really good teachers that should be paid more, but they're not based on the labor unions, the teachers unions, right? They're trying to keep everybody uh, at the same pay. And so that means that there's some excellent teachers that are being underpaid. But that also means there's a lot of horrible, lousy teachers that are way overpaid, right? And I, I guess if you look at the whole totality of all the teachers out there as a group, I would say that teachers are overpaid, not underpaid. So that's another thing that Dalio got 180 degrees wrong. And one more thing, too, that Dalio you know, pointed out as far as the problem with wealth inequality, you know, has to do with the, the, the amount of debt that's out there. And, you know, in particular, student debt, which, you know, he is not calling out the government for its role in, you know, in loading up our kids with all of this debt. Right. But for the government, we would not have this student debt problem. Right. Which brings me to the height of hypocrisy and the congressional hearings today regarding the banks, because at the end of the hearings and I know maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse, but this is just a, a, a good uh, a transition. But the very last thing that uh, Maxine Waters said, right was she was scolding all of the bankers. And of course, the spectacle, uh, the photo op, was all these guys are old and white, right? They're all older white men, right? White men in their 50s and 60s, right? I mean, maybe some were a little bit younger, but they all were relatively older white men who were running these banks, right? And of course, so many people on the committee were so pissed off about that. In fact, one guy who was a black uh, uh, or Con uh, congressman, I don't remember his name, but he actually was pointing this out. 
uh, all of you guys are white. He said, all you guys are men. And he said, just in case, you know, if any of you aren't a man or aren't white, can you raise your hand? Because I want to make sure you're hearing me. And now I was hoping that one of those white guys would have raised his hand and just said he identified as a woman just to see what this guy would say. Right. But but he was really upset that we didn't have more women or more Latinos or more African-Americans on the committee, right? That was a big deal about all these white guys. In fact, there were several questions that were asked of these guys. You know, what are you going to do about hiring more women and more minorities? And is your successor going to be a woman? Is it going to be a minority? Look, none of the, I, mean, I wish somebody would say it's none of your goddamn business. I mean, it's not up to the government to tell you that you have to have a diverse workforce. I mean, first of all, look, it's one thing if the government says you can't discriminate based on, uh, you know, race or sexual orientation or all that stuff. Now, I disagree with that. I think the government shouldn't be able to tell you that. I think businesses should be free to discriminate for whatever reason they want, just like private citizens should be free to discriminate. But I will accept that, okay, let's say for the sake of argument, you're going to say that the government should be able to tell you that you can't deny somebody a job because of their race or because of their gender or whatever. But it's a whole different thing to say you have to hire somebody because of their race. You have to go out of your way to find people who are black or Hispanic or women and put the put them in, in certain jobs just because they're women or they're black. This is nonsense. Businesses should hire the most competent person for the job regardless of their their uh, ethnicity or their sexuality or their sex, right? I mean, if you are going into an operating room and there's a medical team there, do you want the best team or do you want the most diverse team, right? I mean, if, if, some, if, if someone told you as they're willing you in on a gurney, hey, don't worry, we have a really diverse medical team here. We made sure that we had all the ethnic groups represented, all the races, all the sexual orientations. In fact, the guy performing your operation, well, we're not really sure if he's a guy or a gal, but he's transgender, uh, you know, so don't worry. I mean, is that what you want to hear? No, you want to know that I've got the best possible people who are going to operate on me. And I don't care if the best people are white or black or gay or straight. I just want them to be the best. But apparently, all these congressmen care about when it comes to running the banks is what's the gender of the CEO or what's their sexual orientation or, you know, what's their ethnic background. All a bunch of nonsense. But anyway, getting back to, to what I was about to say about Maxine Waters. So the last thing that she said to these white guys, she basically said, what are you going to do about all the students who are saddled with all this debt, right? You guys loaned all this money to all these students, and now they have all this debt that they're struggling to repay, and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, talk about the height of hypocrisy and denial of, of a problem. Why did all of these banks make all of these student loans? Because the government guaranteed the loans. That is the only reason the loans were made. Basically, the government went to these banks and said, hey, we want you to make these loans to these kids. And just to make sure that you make them, we will guarantee the debt. Right? It is a government-guaranteed debt, meaning that without the government guarantee, the loans weren't going to be made. Now, why wouldn't the colleges 
make the loans because they would be worried that the kids wouldn't be able to pay it back. Well, the government said, hey, don't worry whether or not they could pay it back or not, because if they can't, we will. So the only reason that all of these student loans exist in the first place is because the government not only told the banks to make the loans, but said, we guarantee that you can't lose money. This is a risk-free loan to you, right? Because we will guarantee that you get all your money back plus all your interest. So the government basically told the banks to make these loans. And now they're upset that the banks did what they wanted them to do. In fact, what makes the hypocrisy even worse is that the banks don't even make the student loans anymore. The government now does it directly. Now the government is actually loaning the money directly to the kids. Now, how can the government blame the private sector for the student loan debt when it's the government that is actually lending the money to the students. I mean, if, if there was ever a problem that was more obviously caused by government, it's student loans because the government either made the loans or guaranteed the loans, yet now the government is somehow trying to blame the private sector for the problem and asking what they're going to do about it. What's the government going to do about it? How about stop the lending? How about get out of the education? How about forcing colleges to lower tuitions? Because their students can't afford to go without these government-guaranteed loans. You know, what about all of the Republican congressmen who once upon a time objected to the government getting involved in student lending? Because it wasn't unanimous. There obviously were some people way back when who objected to this stuff. They were right. It was right to oppose this. But I'm sure that anybody who was against government guaranteed student loans. Oh, you you don't care about education. You don't care about the people. You're a bad guy, right? You're mean. You don't want students to borrow this money. Exactly. Because the people who were against it understood that this was a problem, that loaning money to students to bid up tuition was going to enrich the colleges and not the students. It was going to you know, enslave the students to debt. So the people who were smart enough to think beyond the immediate, right, to understand the unintended consequences of all the good intentions, those were the good people, but they were probably vilified at the time for not being caring. But now you got people like Maxine Waters is so dumb that she can't even see this. Right. If our elected officials are this dumb, right, talk about the idea of representative democracy, that the representatives of the people are supposed to be smarter than the people. Who the hell is Maxine Waters smarter than? I mean, how could you be any dumber than that? But anyway, let me get back to some of the substance of this of this show, because all these bankers are coming there basically to kiss ass. Right. Because the bankers are there and they're testifying before the Congress that bailed them all out. Remember, right. Without Congress and the government. Most of these guys would have been out of a job, right? And, you know, that would have been a great free market solution, right? Punish all these bad actors, right? If, you, if the banks did something wrong, why didn't the free market punish them? You know, there was, uh, I think, I, f- I forget, I think it was AOC, the bartender, asked one of the final questions. In fact, it was highly anticipated. It was a bit of a letdown. I was expecting a little more fire out of her. She just pointed out a lot of these uh, fines that the banks had paid. And first of all, you know, she acted as if a lot of these fines meant the banks did bad things. I mean, I know personally that a lot of the fines are BS. I mean, the government is just, you know, alleging stuff. And in many cases, the banks did nothing wrong, but they just agreed to pay the fines because they're basically getting shaken down uh, by a thug. And, you know, I've had this happen personally where, you know, a regulator wants to fine you and you know you did something wrong, but the cost of defending yourself is higher than the cost of paying the fine. So you make a decision 
just to write a check rather than stand on principle because that's going to be an expensive stance. And so most of the stuff that she read off that the banks paid fines for is all BS anyway. The banks didn't do anything wrong. It's just the government shaking them down and and, and the banks pay the fines. But it was um, a different congressman had said, you know, why didn't more people go to jail? And was asking if, you know, why didn't more bankers go to jail? You know, what would have been worse than jail for a lot of these guys would have been if they lost all their money, if they went bankrupt. I mean, that would have been, you know, a, a pretty big punishment for a lot of people who, you know, were working in the banks and who got all levered up and were gambling to make a bunch of money, right? They would have lost quite a bit had it not been for the bailouts. But anyway, so all these bankers here have convened on the 10-year anniversary, I guess, of the financial crisis and the bank bailouts. And they're all there to basically kiss ass because obviously they, they want to get bailed out again. <laughs> in fact, one of the one of the questions had to do with Steve Moore. You know, somebody said, hey, you know, the president wants to appoint Steve Moore to the uh, Federal Open Market Committee. And, you know, Steve Moore is on record as saying that he wants to abolish the Fed. Steve Moore is on record as saying he wants to go back to the gold standard, right? I've talked about this. So this congresswoman asked every single one of these uh, representatives uh, if they in favored abolishing the Fed and then if they have favored going back on the gold standard. And surprise, surprise, every single one of them said, no, we don't want to abolish the Fed. And no, we don't want to go back on the gold standard. Well, of course. I mean, what do you expect them to say? Right? I mean, if we were back on a gold standard, there'd be no more bailouts. Had we been on the gold standard in the past, there couldn't have been a bailout in the past. In fact, had we been on the gold standard, there wouldn't have been a financial crisis. The last thing these bankers want to do is go back on a gold standard. It's like, you know, asking criminals if you want more cops on the street. The it's the the gold standard keeps all these guys honest. It's the Federal Reserve that in it has enabled the banks not to have to suffer the consequences of their mistakes. So why would they want to eliminate the Fed? The Fed is their best friend. These bankers are making a fortune off the Fed. It's the people, right? Put some people who represent the real economy Get them to testify. Don't ask the bankers if we should eliminate the Fed or go back on a gold standard. Of course they're not going to want to do that. Right? Ask, again, it's like, it's like asking the criminals if we should have more cops. No, ask the people who are being robbed by the criminals if they want more cops. Because then the answer would be yes. And then, of course, you know, there were questions about whether the banks are now safer now than they were, you know, when they were bailed out. And every single guy, oh, yes, we're we're so much safer than we were. I mean, Jamie Dimon is like, oh, it's multiples. I mean, oh, it's no question about it. Every, we're so much safer now, which is all a bunch of BS. The banks aren't safer now. They're just bigger now. But there's a lot more debt now. The problem is bigger now. You know, I remember the days uh, of the housing bubble. And again, if you don't, you know, look at, you know, haven't read this stuff, go back and go online. And I was writing so many articles in 2004 and 2005 and sending them out to all the reporters, hundreds of reporters and, and publishing them online where I was just going over every aspect of the, uh, of the housing bubble. And, and, and to me, this was the most obvious problem I'd ever seen. And I couldn't understand for the life of me why no one else could figure this out. I mean, it was, it's so obvious to me that about the problems with the, the lending and the collateralized mortgages and the securitization and the appraisals and the Fed keeping interest rates down and Fannie and Freddie and the moral hazards and all this to me, this was the, the most obvious problem I'd ever seen. 
And it was so obvious that a financial crisis was coming to me, but, but nobody could see it. Well, none of these guys, uh, these big bankers who are so sure that the banks are so safe, none of these guys was worried either, at least publicly, none of them were worried. They're just as sanguine as they are now. But the reality is the problems that they're oblivious to today are much, much worse. I mean, what we've got going on right now is so much worse than what was going on back then. I mean, the problem that the world is oblivious to now is much larger than the problem it was oblivious to then. And, you know, so to me, I mean, this is deja vu all over again, only bigger. And if I hadn't lived through it before, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I'm so sure, because I remember there were times when I would start doubting myself because the bubble had gone on so much and, hey, maybe I'm wrong, you know, and then, of course, I'm completely vindicated. And so I've, 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 I've been there and I've done that. So uh, uh, this is par for the course, you know, and so I know I'm going to be vindicated again because this is a bigger bubble. And that's, again, that's why investors need to be prepared because people are going to be blindsided. The dollar is going to crash overnight. It's going to happen while you're sleeping. You're not going to have a chance to save yourself. If you don't have the right portfolio, then that's it. There is no second chance. You can't be too late. You can only be too early. And it doesn't matter how many years early you are, you've got to be early. Because so many people are going to be blindsided so quickly uh, when, 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 when this stuff goes down. But, you know, most of the, the hearing was simply... A, a, a publicity stunt or a photo ops for the Democrats to, to bash the, uh, the, the banks and for the Republicans to talk about how great the economy was. Every single Republican who questioned the bankers started off his comments by saying, we've got the greatest economy ever. We've got low unemployment. Everything is great. You guys are doing a great job because everything is great, which, of course, is going to work perfectly for the Democrats. When it all hits the fan and everything collapses, right, it's the Republicans that go down with the ship because, you know, they're the captains. They're the one that said everything was great. It was the Democrats who, who said there was a problem. Forget about the fact that they completely misdiagnosed what the problem is or what's causing it. At least they're going to be credited. Uh, for seeing it. And of course, their solution, their cure is going to make the disease much, much worse. But, you know, they spent their time on all this petty nonsense about, you know, making sure that you have a diverse uh, uh, hiring practices at your banks. Then they talked about stuff like uh, how much banks are charging for uh, overdraft protection on checks, that this is terrible, that they're victimizing poor people by, by charging them fees when they overdraw their checking account. I mean, come on. I mean, do the Democrats not want anybody to be personally responsible for anything? I mean, why don't they blame the, uh, the account holder for not balancing his checkbook and for bouncing a check? I mean, should people be able to bounce checks, you know, in, in, you know, just, you know, without any consequence. I mean, what's going to stop people from bouncing checks if the, if the banks don't charge you for bouncing a check? And a part of it is overdraft protection so that, hey, if you write a check without money, they won't bounce the check. They'll, they'll, they'll front you the money. And there's a fee for that. But in many cases, the fee that the bank charges is less than what the merchant would charge for the bounce check. Because when you write a bad, bad check to a merchant, the merchant has usually has a check policy that, hey, if you give me a check and it bounces, this is your fee. So normally the overdraft protection is lower than that. So people are saving money. But the idea that the banks have to provide this service for free, look, these are adults that have bank accounts. If you don't like the overdraft charges, then don't buy the overdraft protection.
If you don't like the cost of bouncing a check, then don't write a check unless you got money in the bank. Right? And to expect the banks to provide the service for free, this is ridiculous. Meanwhile, these idiots are up there lecturing these banks. Like, oh, we got to protect the public from these little charges, $10, $20 charges. How much money are they stealing from the workers in terms of, of pay, in taxes, and regulation? I mean, they're, 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 they're talking about pennies. They're, they're, you know, they're stealing dollars, big dollars from us. In fact, you know, one of these... Uh, Guys, one of the bankers pointed out, because he was asked about the wealth inequality problem, and one of the bankers pointed out that the big problem for wealth inequality is a lack of savings, right? That people aren't saving enough. And he said that Congress needs to do something to address the, the lack of savings in the economy, which, of course, A, they're not going to do anything because they don't want anybody to save. They want everybody to spend. That's what's keeping the bubble economy going, right? There is no way for people to save without reducing their current consumption, right? So if we're going to do anything about a lack of retirement savings, people have to save more, which means they have to spend less. Well, if they spend less and you have a bubble economy based on spending, well, then, you know, the whole thing collapses. So that's why nobody wants anybody to save. So we can't have, we can't spend everything we earn and then have money saved for retirement, Right. You know, either we save it or we spend it. You know, I mentioned on a previous podcast about how now government wants to mandate employers to put money into a pension. Right. Well, I mean, they already did that with Social Security. Right. That's another example that, again, that uh, Ray Dalio should be pointing out where the government is responsible for destroying the wealth of the, the middle class and the poor by mandating that they participate in this gigantic Ponzi scheme called Social Security. You know, because the government made this observation under Roosevelt. Oh, you know, we have to make sure that the public saves for their old age. And some people might not save any money, so let's create this Social Security pension scheme. And so we'll have the government save for them. Well, the problem is the government didn't save any of the money. Every every nickel that the government collected in Social Security, they spent. The government did exactly what they were afraid the public was going to do. They spent all the money that was supposed to be set aside uh, for Social Security, right? They just, the money's gone. So there's nothing saved. So if it wasn't for all the Social Security taxes that people paid, they might have saved on their own. But because they had this payroll tax, they didn't have any money to save. The government took it before they had a chance to. So now they're just dependent on a Ponzi scheme instead of their own savings. Now, obviously, people who were very rich, right, they were able to earn a lot of money that wasn't subject to the Social Security payroll tax. So that they were able to save that money. But if you're a lower class, middle class worker, 100% of your salary was subject to the payroll taxes. So the government confiscated that money. They were supposed to save it for you, but they didn't save any of it. Uh, so that's another reason. That's another failure of government, not failure of, of capitalism. Then, of course, they had every every single banker you know, how to kiss butt when it comes to climate change. One of the congressmen asked about climate change and they got every single one of these guys to agree that it was a big problem. The government had to do something about it. I don't think they had, you know, a particular uh, program in mind for their own bank and what their banks were going to do in light of climate change. But they all agreed uh, with the congressman or woman, I forget, who asked the question that, yes, we have this real threat, climate change is real, and the government has to do something about it, which, of course, is exactly uh, what this congresswoman wanted to hear. That's the soundbite uh, that they were looking for. And probably, you know, one of the craziest, craziest comments 
one of the congressmen, again, I think this was one of the uh, 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 African-American, was basically talking to uh, Jamie Dimon about whether J.P. Morgan benefited from slavery or not. And again, he asked for like a show of hands for all the people whose banks uh, benefited from slavery to raise their hand or something like that. I mean, what difference does it make if J.P. Morgan benefited from slavery? He was talking about whether or not the bank made loans uh, to slave owners or whether slaves were ever collateral. First of all, yes, J.P. Morgan uh, has been around for a long time. Any business or, you know, uh, that can trace its roots back to before 1863 was somehow involved with slavery. And I guess any American business that was operating at that time uh, can be said to have benefited in some way from slavery if, in fact, it did business with anybody who owned slaves, right? If somebody had a customer who was a slave owner and they had a business relationship with that uh, individual, then they, in theory, benefited from that relationship. So they benefited from slavery. Who gives a damn? What is the purpose of bringing this nonsense up? Because none of the current shareholders of J.P. Morgan stock were alive when J.P. Morgan was benefiting from slavery. None of their grandparents were alive when J.P. Morgan was benefiting from slavery, let alone actually own stock in J.P. Morgan. All of the people who ran J.P. Morgan or any of their, whoever it was at the time, right, they're all long dead and buried. And so were the, the slave owners are dead and buried. Generations ago, the slaves too what is the purpose of bringing this up in a hearing in 2019? This is all politics. I was ready for this guy to ask about reparations. Like, what does he want J.P. Morgan now to admit that they benefited from slavery? And so now what? They're supposed to do what? Make reparations to, you know, black Americans today, right? Because at some point in time when slavery was legal, people who are long dead and buried may have benefited from it. And the people who supposedly suffered, well, they're long dead and buried too. I mean, this shows you this is pure nonsense. This is politics. This is some guy trying to look good for his constituents by saying, yeah, J.P. Morgan is evil because they benefited from slavery. Look, there's a lot of bad things that these banks are doing now. You don't have to go back to slavery to find problems with J.P. Morgan. But the problems with these banks has to do with their cozy relationship with the Federal Reserve. I mean, this is already the private... Uh, government partnership that uh, Dalio says we need more of. You have the Federal Reserve working with these banks, right? And of course, the Federal Reserve is private. It's not a government agency. So that's already a government private sector partnership. The Federal Reserve is private, right? If you don't believe me, if you've ever gotten a letter from the Federal Reserve, there's a stamp on it. If you get a letter from a government agency, there is no stamp. Right? They don't have to put stamps because they own the post office. But whenever the Federal Reserve sends a letter, it puts a stamp on it, just like any other private business. And the money that the Federal Reserve pays to the government is, is a tax. Right, It has a tax of 100% of its profits above a certain amount. It actually pays it as a tax to the government because it's a private uh, enterprise. It's a private banking syndicate. Yes, you have government appointees, but it's private. It was conceived to be private, and so it's a government-private sector partnership. And it's a problem. It's, it's created nothing but problems, right? So the, the last thing we need is more of that. But again, there's plenty of stuff that you can hold these banks accountable for without going back to slavery. But 
the, the, the congressmen have no clue uh, about any of this stuff. Probably adding insult to injury, though. Somewhere along the way, maybe midway through this conference, uh, they, they stopped and Maxine Waters wanted to recognize a distinguished person who happened to be there in the gallery, who she credited with being such a great force for good in banking. And it was none other than Jesse Jackson. Right. I mean, Jesse Jackson is nothing but a thug. He's a shakedown artist. I mean, he would go into these banks and and he would threaten phony lawsuits unless they caved in and gave money to his operation push. I mean, this guy should be in jail. Talk about people that should be in jail. It's Jesse Jackson. But on all these guys, they fall in love with him. He's like he's their hero. And sure, he was there, you know, just making the photo op even better. But I mean, all this, of course, you know, these guys are all convening. 10 years after the financial crisis, saying everything is great, and the reality is we're on the verge of a much bigger crisis than the the one we had. I mean, ironically, what would have been great, right, because all these guys are kissing ass to the government, because, you know, the government and all these politicians were mad at the banks because they somehow think it was the banks and capitalism that caused the financial crisis. It wasn't. It was the government. It was these very politicians who were grilling these guys. The financial crisis was caused by the Federal Reserve and by the United States government. The United States government crammed these bad mortgages down these banks. They were forcing banks to make bad loans to minority borrowers who were not creditworthy. Right? They were forcing these loans. They were guaranteeing these loans through... Fetty and Fannie, and then Fetty and Fannie, government-guaranteed enterprises, government-sponsored enterprises, were actually going into the secondary market and buying up the subprime loans that were underwritten by banks that wouldn't have been underwritten had Fannie and Freddie not been making a market and buying up these bonds. And the only reason that these bonds were even bought was because the Fed brought interest rates down to 1%. And we had such huge trade deficits during that bubble. There was so much demand for higher yielding assets that everybody was loading up on these government guaranteed mortgages. Uh, So it is a crock. The financial crisis was created by the very government that is now grilling these guys. And because of the bailouts that all these guys are now singing the praises and and thanking everybody, they're thanking the taxpayers, they're thanking Congress. Yes, thank you for bailing us out, right? Well, this guaranteed... All of these bailouts guarantees that the next crisis is going to be way worse than the 08 crisis that happened 10 years ago. Oh, another thing, too, I forgot to mention that the the banks were really being called out regarding how they handle foreclosures. You know, like, how dare you foreclose on these loans? And are you doing everything you can to, you know, to not foreclose? I mean, look, I mean... (laughs) One of the reasons that there are a lot of foreclosures is because the banks or the government rather encourage the banks to make loans to uh, borrowers who are really not credit worthy. Right. That's part of the problem. Right. When you lend money to people who really shouldn't be borrowing it because they can't afford to pay it back, there's a good chance that there's going to be a foreclosure. And again, they never want to hold the borrower accountable. The banks are only foreclosing because the lender is not making the payments. What are they supposed to do? Right. I mean, if you don't risk losing your home, if you don't make the mortgage payment, then why would you pay the payment? Right. I mean, that's the moral hazard. There has to be some kind of adverse consequence to not making your mortgage payment. You know, and a lot of these guys, of course, don't even have a down payment. That's another part of the problem. And they talked about that, how these banks are you know, helping people buy homes with low down payments. That is a mistake. 
You don't want someone to buy a house that doesn't have a down payment. Then they have no skin in the game. Then they have nothing to lose, right? You're going to more likely to make your mortgage payment if you put some hard-earned savings down, right? Because you want to protect that. If you didn't have to put anything down, you got nothing to lose. Also, again, if you don't have the resources to, to save for a down payment, then you don't have the resources to own a home. That is the reality. Homes are expensive. When you own a home, and I know because I own several, when you own a home, you better have a lot of money. You better have savings because stuff goes wrong. Things have to be fixed, right? It's easy when you're a renter, and I've been a renter too, and I know how much easier it is. If something goes wrong, you pick up the phone, you call the landlord. It's his problem. Well, when you're the owner, you're the landlord. It's your problem. And, and, you know, one of the important things is, all right, you own a home. It's not just can you afford to make the payments. Do you have the extra money to maintain the property? And if you can't save for a down payment, what does that mean? That means you're living paycheck to paycheck. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you have no business buying a house. And the bank should deny you a loan if you're living paycheck to paycheck. But then the politicians don't like that. Because then a lot of minorities might be getting denied loans and the banks, the government says, oh, that's discrimination. It's not discrimination because they're a minority. It's discrimination because they're a bad credit risk, because they shouldn't be borrowing the money in the first place. The banks are trying to do the right thing by denying them a loan that they can't repay. But then the government, for political reasons, tries to step in and get them to do the wrong thing. Again, this is an example of where capitalism would have worked if it was allowed to function. But the government doesn't like the results of capitalism, so it interferes and it tries to force banks to do things that under capitalism they would not do. And then when these mistakes blow up and there's losses and there's foreclosures, who gets blamed? Does the government ever reflect upon itself? Do any of these politicians look in the mirror to see the real cause of the problems? No. They constantly point fingers at everybody else instead of accepting responsibility for their own actions. No final uh, comment on today's podcast. The FOMC minutes were released today at 2 o'clock. Uh, kind of a yawn or nobody was really paying attention. There was so much other stuff going on. Uh, but, you know, no overt indications that a rate cut is coming. Uh, but uh, there was some indication that the FOMC is concerned about the housing market. They are also concerned that we didn't get a bigger boost in GDP from the tax cuts, right? That there wasn't a more lasting bounce. Uh, and they are, uh, you know, waiting patiently to see if the slowdown that we've had in the first quarter uh, is reversed in the, the second quarter. And again, they did uh, focus more on weakening economies overseas, worried about whether weakness in Europe or Asia uh, will spill over into the United States. When the reality is our homegrown problems are far worse than anything that's going to spill over from overseas. The U.S. economy is the weak economy. It's growth here that's going to be slowing. We have a major hurricane on the horizon and none of these bankers, no one at the Federal Reserve, no one in Washington, no one on Wall Street can see it coming. It is, it is as plain as day. Uh, it's bigger and more obvious than the 2008 financial crisis. And just like nobody other than a few people and me warned about the last crisis, that is exactly what's happening now. Thank you.